beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. And once again, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, it's really, we have a lot of gratitude when we do these podcasts. It's it's an honor to do these and it's an honor to have you guys listen. I mean, I mean that's, that's an amazing thing to have that uh, relationship going on. So thank you so much and we hope you're enjoying it. And yeah, again, on today's podcast, we have with us Jana Lopez. And she has over 25 years in media, communications, and editorial endeavors. She has spent the last 10 years as an owner, publisher, and editor of several regional magazines. And as a word enthusiast, she's helped multi-million dollar companies craft their stories and currently leads workshops and coaches clients about midlife identity loss and grief. Jana was recently diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and started graduate school to obtain her MFA in creative writing. She is a French fry fanatic, tequila educator, oh, I like that, and aficionado, and loves to photograph life's pretty little moments and is the author of the book, Me, My Selfie, and I, a midlife conversation about loss, identity, grief, and seeing who you are. Uh, Jana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Just really quickly, what's your favorite tequila? There are so many, and I get that right now. a lot. It's like asking, right now, Fortaleza. It's called Fortaleza. It's handcrafted, and it's lovely. Fortaleza. I'm going to have to look that. I'm going to write that down and look it up, and maybe I'll have a taste of that. All right, Josh, we can continue. <laughs> so if Sean tries to order some alcohol, we'll, <laughs> we'll um, So this is going to be a very interesting conversation because from reading your bio is that there was a huge shift in your life around your midlife is that correct huge okay and so what is what is midlife is that like 40 to something or 30 um that's a good question i would i would define it maybe as between the ages of 40 and 60 although i've met people that have experienced midlife trauma or transition earlier and even later, but it seems to be around that 40 to 60 year period. Hmm. And so if you go through your story on how, what shocked you about, I guess, hitting your 40s, like what changed for you to then have um, so much crisis and identity issues? Uh, well, that's a good question. I think what happens is that we reach these pinnacles where everything starts to change in substantial and mysterious ways. So in that time frame, your parents may be ill or pass away. You have friends who become ill and pass away. Your children may move out. Your career may suffer some sort of a major blow or transition. And these things that we filter our lives through in terms of our own identities and our own relationships to ourselves are suddenly no longer there. Yeah. So, you, so you have these kind of uh, crisis crises pop up, and they're different than I guess the last five years of your life or ten years of your life, where it, it's uh, it can be if it can, it can be really difficult. And I guess uh, you know, for me, I guess it would uh, relate to I guess people dying around me because I'm at that age where my parents are still alive, so they're not really there yet and and you know full disclosure i'm 35 so maybe in 10 years if something happens to you know people in my family i could i could get into that uh area 
or even losing a job or, or transitioning from jobs. That happens all the time. Um, that's, I, I guess, an A type of uh, crises. Is that that's true? Well, I would say that you're not far off from my understanding. However, I would amend it just by adding that if you're 35, that by the time you're 45, you would have had some life experience and internalization of those life experiences that are going to develop and form and shift in a way that you can't yet understand right now. And I think what happens in midlife, in air quotes, is that because of those things that are going around you and because of where you're at and your ability to understand them in a, in a certain way and internalize them in a certain way, those two things collide or coalesce or integrate all at the same time so that you're experiencing life and its fragility and its vulnerability and its mystery like in a whole new way. It just mm -hmm. becomes so much closer as part of your, instead of wearing a sweater, it becomes your skin. So I'm really curious, who did you see yourself as before midlife? And then who do you see yourself as now? Uh, before midlife, I would say I had so much confidence. I had this knowing that who I was in the world and what happened to me was based on this ability to move in the world a certain way, fake it till you make it, that I was in charge of everything. I mean, it was an illusion of control, which wasn't really true. And uh, midlife, I was so disassociated from the person I thought I was or knew I was or believed myself to be that I just didn't see myself at all. And that was part of the depression and part of what I don't call as a midlife crisis, I call a dark flight of the self, and that's another topic. But meaning, I started to relate to things in a whole different way. And, and once I got through that, it took about four, four and a half years to get on the other side of all this. I'm still trying to figure out how I'm seeing myself, and part of it is a welcome gift, part of it is a little scary but I'm definitely not the person I was before this whole thing started. That person has definitely died. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how much we change over the years and how at different parts of, I guess, within your age can really have an impact on when you start seeing yourself in a different role. And like, just as growing up myself, it's just like I always saw myself as a student for so long, I only recently graduated. So that was always part of my identity. And then when I finished school, it was hard to think of who I am now beyond exactly. sort of being, being a student. And so I, I can understand that in the concept of changing how you see yourself when you wake up and trying to find, I guess, a purer form, like I, I do anyways, is trying to find a purer form where it's not really about what you do, but who you are. That's exactly yeah. it. I mean, that's the whole basis of the question that started me. I mean, that's exactly it. It's who I, who am I, not for what I do, but for how I'm being, or who am I, not for what I produce, but for what I experience. And it's a completely different way of relating to oneself because we are so used to looking at ourselves and identifying with ourselves and knowing ourselves as what we do in the world. Like everybody relates to that those roles and those titles as just 
part of who they are, but in truth, it's just what we do. It's not who we are. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's a, that's a interesting concept because uh, you know I guess we we all kind of attach ourselves to these roles and, and behaviors of what we think makes us like. I am a brother. I am a father, or you know, I am a operations manager, and then that kind of feeds into itself of like, oh yeah, this is me. I'm a complete version of whatever. I have nothing to fear. And then when those things go that can be a moment of, I guess, crises where you're like, what am I, if not these things? And that's exactly one, it. Yeah. And you grow attached to those things. And then it's about, I guess you always, I guess the, the way to combat that is to always have a, always reevaluating your internal self and being okay with that and without all these other things. Um. yeah. And also, we can't learn we can't learn until it's time to learn it you know as much as I've heard so many cliches and platitudes about things it didn't make sense even even though two words self-love I've probably heard that 50,000 times just in the last year alone and my relationship to those two words completely changes depending on when and how I'm open or receptive or aware of what that actually means to me. And so I think as we're questioning and looking and experiencing, um, the one thing I tell people in my book is to really be aware of expectations because you alluded to that, that we have so many expectations of ourselves and how it's supposed to go and how we're supposed to find ourselves and all of these shoulds, coulds, woulds, and the expectations are just tremendous weights upon us that limit and prohibit our ongoing dialogue and relationship in its truest form. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So for, for you in your life, what was um, maybe the first crisis that you were facing? I think when my grandmother died, that was the beginning of this, what I would call midlife, dark flight of the self. That that was really a, a difficult thing for me because I always identified with her as part of my existence. And then when, when she died, it was the first time I think I, I got a sense of what grief was about and how that related to the loss of the loss of my own innocence for lack of a better word that's not really the right word but that is what shifted me into knowing that we die Mm -hmm. so can you talk a little bit about that experience of coming to terms with your own death and then also how your grief sort of manifested itself in i guess waking life Oh, uh, well, with my grandma, it was long and hard and difficult uh, just because she was such a touchstone in my daily life. I had so much admiration and appreciation for her. And um, people talk about how you can have ongoing conversations. And, you know, I would say I have had moments where I have I have felt her presence, but not enough. So. It wasn't like those things carried me through, like, oh, I know she's with me. I mean, I know a lot of people have that spiritual or religious 
or uh, some context of what happens beyond that they find comfort in. I was so uncertain about that. And I still have my questions and how it got me thinking about my own death. This was funny because I was talking about identity and death. And then when I started thinking about my own death, I realized I was just as conflicted about that as I was as who I, who I am in life. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to laugh about it, but I was thinking about myself, you know, if I was going to be cremated or if I was going to be put into the earth or if I was going to be sunk into an ocean reef. And the thought of like how my death was going to play out was just as conflicting. And I, I actually thought that was, morbidly hilarious for a while because it's like, look, you can't figure it out in life and you can't figure it out in death. So I think the the thought of it was just so big I had to I had to take it to a, a dark place to <laughs> make light of it. Well I think that's it's part of it. It's really just facing it at first and however you deal with that is sort of how you deal with it. So if you laugh, you make fun of it, that's cool. But at least you're facing it because that's the first step. I think that's why there's a lot of death cafes going on now. It's a big movement in, into people realizing that they will die and to come to terms with that and to also start planning. Because I think that's a huge uh, important aspect of just even for you as you grow older to understand where you want things to go and also to relieve some of the burdens off those who are going to be caring for you as you get older. So how do you want to die? Well, I haven't, I haven't exactly settled on the end resting finality of it because as ridiculous as it seems, I think I'm still going to know, <laughs> you know, my husband's like, you're not going to know. I'm like, I'm going to know. So, um, but if I had to pick my way of how I'd want to die, it, it would be, I, I probably could see maybe no more than early 90s. That that would be a gift and a blessing if I could make it to that point, which doesn't seem that far away anymore. And it would be nice to be around friends and family and definitely on my own terms and on my own choices. I think the thing when we imagine ourselves at those places it's inevitable that something is going to occur physically, mentally. And um, I, I'm probably more afraid of losing my mind than having my body fall apart. So whatever, wherever I go at that end, I, I'm hoping my mind is still with me. Yeah, no, me too. And did you ever think about the location of where you, you thought about it? Like I know for me, I had, why I asked, because I did an exercise recently. And I pictured myself like by the water just like sitting there with like a cup of coffee or something and then like passing That's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know. So yeah. have you thought about sort of the environment? Like, do you want to be at home? Do you want to be in like a tropical location or is it going to be like in a hospital? Um, yeah, probably being at home would be nice because that's where everything that we experienced and believe to be true about our life and about who we are in our life unfolds. And I'm planning to move eventually to Santa Fe, New Mexico, maybe in a couple of years. And it's so pretty there and the colors of the earth and the sky and everything is just so lovely that if and when things work out to the way we would like, I, I could see myself at home in a beautiful 
casa in, in Adobe style in San Jose, New Mexico with my children and loved ones around me. Yeah, I like that. And I think it's just by bringing that conversation up, hopefully other listeners can start thinking about it a little bit more because there is sort of, there is that resistance within us and just be able to continue to move forward and look at it can help not just only in your own grief and your how you live, but it affects everything else because now you're, I think, opening up more of the um, ability to have the courage to start facing some of these challenges that do come in the most unexpected ways. And so for you, it was your grandmother. And then what happened after that? So now you're grieving, you're trying to deal with this, you're trying to look at your own, your own life and it's, it's meaning. And then what else happened? Uh, I, then I went through a divorce and um, I call them the seven D's. And I think we all experience one or more of these, maybe in succession, maybe simultaneously in midlife, which is what prompts these uh, dark flights of the self. So the seven D's would be death, somebody you know or love dies, uh, disease diagnosis, disillusionment, divorce, dismantling, which could be in a career. And for me, it was, um, it had to do with my business and a business sale, which was something I, I used to be a magazine publisher. And it was something I loved, loved, loved and related to being that person in the world. And uh, the business sale didn't go exactly as planned. And I was basically fired from this publication that I had owned for 10 years and it really kicked me out of the nest and I had before at that time had reasons to get up and appointments to make and people to connect with and deals to make and and then when I had none of that like in an instant it was the most disconcerting thing and that that is what set me on the path of looking at what what does it mean to become who we are at a time when who we are is not what we do? Yeah, that's so interesting. Because like the role of being a wife and having that partner, and then you're like, oh, at least, you know, there's something you still can cling on to, which is the job, right? That routine. Then the routine sort of kicks you out. And I can't imagine what you went through. Could you explain a little bit about even the questions you had and how you came out of the suffering because I think they said like it's got to be in your book I figure but uh, any kind of tips you've learned along the way uh, I think I was super hard on myself every day I was like why can't you get your act together what is wrong with you that you don't you can't change this sad sack channel uh, I mean I had so many mantras of being just so hard and critical and unkind. And once I discovered it as grief, and I thought to myself, gee, if my, my friend died, if I had a friend who, who died and I love that person and they died, would I be so hard on myself saying, get your act together every day? What's wrong with you? Why are you still crying? Why are you still in your pajamas? I mean, I wouldn't have done that if a friend had died. So like when I started thinking about things as grief and the complication of grief and the mystery of grief and how grief has such its own 
power and pathway and nothing that you can think about ever channels or diverts the way grief goes. And so I had a very clear understanding that what I was going through was a very heart-centric, spiritually based, I suppose, uh, more soulful based type of experience similar and related to grief, whereas nothing my mind could have told me would have changed it. So that is what I tell people. If you can recognize that life and these changes are very much small deaths over and over again, and it is grief, if you could be kinder to yourself and you understood it in that way, would that create an opening for you so that you don't wake up every day angry at yourself and mad at yourself and disassociated with yourself and so many expectations. And it's just, it was, I don't want to say it was a waste of time, but I might've been kinder to myself along the way during a very difficult transition. And that's what I hope for people. Yeah. Well said there, there, you know, there's a lot of external pressures, stresses, you know, we live in societies that are, you know, go, go, go and, and, you know, make the most of it and work hard. And obviously you've done that, but uh, like so getting fired from a job, it's hard not to take things personal, you know, to really have it hit you in, in your soul. And like, and that goes for, anything, you know, uh, a breakup, you know, a divorce, or, you know, um, changing homes, whatever it is, you know, you, you have this, we, we tend to kind of obviously, we're hard on ourselves in that in that sense. And uh, that can be difficult. And, and it's it's hard not to, obviously, like you said, is, is kind of detached from that. And to still be okay with who you are and to be nice to yourself and kind to yourself during these times, just like it would, like you said, like a, a best friend died or, you know, grandparent died. Like you're, you're not, we wouldn't, we wouldn't think it was normal if you sat at your home and said, well, why am I feeling like this? I shouldn't, I gotta I get know. better. You know, I, I gotta be better. It's like, yeah, okay. But, but this has to work itself out. And just like a job loss is, you know, it's difficult, you know, you, you were like you said you were fired that's not that's not a you know a, a win-win situation for both parties it's a loss for one party and a, and a whatever for another party so it's it's tough but you know finding that within yourself to say you know it's okay and this doesn't affect me as jana the person the jana the soul it's just uh something a lot a type of loss a type of you know grieving process that i have to get through and uh, see what's on the other side. And I think because there, we were growing up in a time where social media is such a prevalent part of how we see ourselves in the world, it also places an undue, unrealistic amount of expectation that hinders the grief process in a very profound way that I don't think people are really uh, aware of like how much that hinders and gets in the way of having a relationship and a conversation with yourself when you're in the middle of grief. Oh yeah, absolutely. If if we're all painting the perfect picture, then, you know, we're not really having a discussion, are we? We're just kind of like showcasing that, Hey, you know, this is my family and Oh look, we just had a baby and Oh look, we just had a, you know, oh, you know, my husband just got a new job or we just got a new car that's the kind of the, the versions of ourselves we show on social media and Facebook and Instagram and all these other things. 
uh, you know, none of us are really posting pictures of our crisis or, you know, us <laughs> after a breakup eating a bunch of chocolate and trying to cry ourselves to sleep. Like, that's not, that's not really uh, social media worthy. There's um, no hashtag for that. Yeah. <laughs> hashtag cry myself to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag depression. Yeah, and, and it's also how many <laughs> likes are you gonna get? Like, you know, that's obviously, you know, we would see that as like that's a tough one. Like, who's gonna like that? My like, race, like, because there's no like sad face like they have in Facebook. It's yeah, always a, a like heart. I think there are <laughs> groups that are. I think yeah, absolutely. I think there are groups, and I think there are people in social media who are starting to be more honest and authentic. And uh, I think those are the people. Like, you know, in the grief world, we see a lot of people with grief pages and. You know, Instagrams that are kind of showing the pain and, and showing the, a side of grief and death that we need to hear. So I think that's good. There, it, it does seem like there are those facets, but I think the majority, you know, out of your how many, let's say I have 300, 400 friends on Facebook, not the general vibe is to kind of, you know, showcase the good stuff and not really go ahead and, and talk about the true inner selves. That's part of what I think prompted me why I wrote the book and why I'm putting the book out there are two different reasons. And I think why I'm putting the book out there is because I want people to see and understand that there is a level of conversation and an openness and an allowance for the messiness of the process that is super important. And most of what I found out there when I was going through this was very superficial and it was uh, quick, easy, fix solutions to very complicated problems. And nobody that I knew, at least myself, I didn't buy it. Like, I didn't believe it. And I wanted people to understand that if they don't bake that pie that they get from the Better Homes and Gardens magazine, that they think they're going to bake someday, and then they don't, and then they feel bad about themselves, that's fine, because that's just not the right picture. Like, it's messy. It's like those Pinterest fails, my, my version <laughs> of, like, trying to get get a conversation going much more like the Pinterest sales of the skeleton cupcakes that look like blobs, you know, that's <laughs> much more of the world I, I, world, I was walking in. So. I'm curious, how is the conversation? So you wrote the, the book, but like, how's the conversation when you approach people with it? Are people willing to go there and, and ask questions about this topic or is it still like in the back and they're like, Oh, I'll, I'll get to that when I need to kind of thing. That's a, that's a good question. I would say what has surprised me the most is number one, men have resonated so deeply, which I didn't really expect. Not that I was excluding men in the conversation, but it is the perspective of a woman that includes menopause and other things. But men have stepped forward and said, wow, you have touched me. And I've gotten emails and things long, long emails from, from men. That surprised me. I think that um, people are surprised by how honest it is. People want to share with me something that they wish they could do in their own life, in, in mid-life, or they, they've been relieved, like, wow, you know, you really showed me something I didn't understand, and I do now. So I have gotten such a mixed bag, and that, I feel, has been amazing like that has been a beautiful part of this which continues to unfold because the book is just out now for a few weeks and that that is something that um if any of us even with what you do with your conversations talking about death and grief if you can 
connect with somebody at a deeper level who is willing to hear it or maybe doesn't respond but will consider what you've shared, that's like the greatest gift. And I think you, just like you know, when you have these conversations, you never know who's listening and how it's going to reach somebody. There's a, a hidden gift in and a hidden beauty in that we never know how these conversations are going to reach people and how they're going to come back around. So I love that the serendipitous nature of this is uh, a, a rock thrown in a placid lake that just ripples and we're just there to witness it, which is awesome. Yeah, I like that too. And that was part of the learning process for me is that when you do something, you just don't know and to be okay with that and continue to do it based on it being right in your heart. And when you get those letters, that's why it's so exciting because you just don't know. And when you when you hear from, I'm guessing people from all around the world will read your book and have an impact and some will reach out, but most probably won't just because they're doing their own thing. But I'm glad you're having such positive feedback for yourself because anytime you do something and you change your direction, to be rewarded like that is such a beautiful quality to allow you to keep going. Because I know in my life, just even with doing the podcast and stuff, I know Sean can talk about it too. It's just like when you get that feedback, it gives you a lot more motivation to continue going. All you need is one person. And you're like, oh, wow, it's reaching people. Let's do this some more. Let's do this some more. Let's reach out. Let's continue the conversation. And I hope that, you know, with you, you continue to get that feedback. And so what's next for you after this book? Is there, are you going to do a, a coaching thing where, where you're going to help these people if they do have issues? Yeah. Book? And up? I'm going to say just on the heels of what you said, not everybody's going to love what we do and people will be critical of what we do and they will make comments about what we do. And that's okay too. Like I'm, I'm anticipating and expecting that moving forward, I, I will get all sorts of feedback. And the lesson for me has been to feel uh, confident is not the right word, but to be uh, allowing enough and accepting enough and happy enough with myself that I did something amazing and letting that land within me. And so that's part of it. And then for what's next, I want to speak to groups of all sizes, book clubs and conferences and professional conferences, people that want to understand how their professional lives and personal lives in midlife change. Uh, I want to be able to have the conversation and let start a new conversation. Let people understand that what this is, this very tender, fragile, weird, funky junk, as I call it, of a time is is uh, delicate and it needs support and it needs conversation, a new conversation, not not a superficial conversation. So I'm hoping to connect with people and help them one-on-one -on -one and with midlife coaching. If they want to get through some of this, I can help them work through it and just hear how the changes of our lives uh, connect us because we are more alike and we do have things that we experience and there are many losses and grief is complicated and lonely and mysterious and I just want to be in the middle of these conversations to listen and share I mean I think listening is also very important just to hear people want to be 
heard and they also want to be seen. So I want to help provide that space that gives them the room to just be where they're at and say, don't, don't worry about it. You're not, you don't have to do anything or be anything other than where you are and who you are at this moment. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that's, that's a way we can connect with people. Um, I think uh, what, like doing this podcast has really done a lot for me personally, because it's um, eliminated some of the fear around death and grief. Uh, I haven't faced major uh, grief in that sense. I lost my grandparents recently last year or two, both of them, but they were also, they had lived a full life. They, they you know, it was, it's a little dip, a little bit different than let's say losing a child or losing someone at midlife or something. So um, I think having these conversations all the time with people who have gone through um, what I, for me would be more serious loss. I think that that's really good to help me come to terms with that fear. And and it's added a lot and it makes me, and, and the more I talk about it, the less kind of less anxiety and, and also the more connected I feel with people and also my personal goals. Um, the trajectory kind of changes a little bit. Whereas like, you know, once you talk about death and grief and loss, that's like the most important thing. So like the mundane worries aren't as, um, aren't as prominent in my life. And and the other side to that is I think what you're doing and what you plan to do in terms of having talks with people in, in these communities and what's what's great is, you know, you mentioned all sorts of areas. You mentioned like, you know, people in the community, also like corporations. And I think that's great. I think, you know, go where the people are. And having that conversation is just going to enhance enhance the chance of people being touched by it because also like look you could de- deliver the message every day but it might not hit a person until it's the right time for them but it's up to people like you and people like us to at least have that conversation or set the place for that conversation and then you never know what happens out of that or how someone comes to that conference or show or talk that you're doing and is impacted and that's the beauty of it. And then that, that also leads to like, I was having compassion for people who might maybe don't understand it yet or, or don't want to talk about it or dismiss it totally. I mean, we've done, we've done conferences where we're at a booth and like, you know, you see someone walk by and they're excited and they, they want to talk about their experience. But then you see someone who takes a look at the material, you know, and just kind of shrugs us off and walks through, you know, I can't be mad at that person either. I can't, I can't say, oh, you're ignoring this, it's, you know, whatever, whatever. I just have to say, well, hey, there's a time and for you and, and it is what it is. Um, but no, I think that's great what you said in terms of bringing it to communities and where the people are and, and you know, having that conversation is really going to add a lot to their life, but also your, your personal life. We will see. I mean, I think so far, <laughs> so just having this conversation with you is added to my life. So I think it continues to bring gifts of just expression like we're just here to express and discover and enjoy the moments that are good and sort of learn how to be with the moments that are not as good and we may not have a cognitive understanding but maybe we're going to be kinder to ourselves along the way like that would be a baseline goal for me moving ahead Mm, i like that i like that a lot all right so i'm curious are you a dreamer? Do you like to dream? <laughs> or do you remember your dream? I often? do. I have crazy <laughs> dreams. Like, and, and that's been in the last couple of years. I, I've definitely had very 
specific and, and profound dreams. Your first real challenge was your grandmother, so her death. So have you had a dream about her after she died? I did. She was the day after she died and she she and I were very close and she had about nine days where she was in the process of passing over and she uh, finally died on Day of the Dead actually and the next day I had this dream that she was in an Astro minivan sitting in the passenger side. Somebody was driving although there was nobody there and the van was heading up towards the clouds, and she had her arm casually draped on the side of the chair, and she was just smiling, and she looked and seemed happy. Wow, that's cool. Why that van? That's an old van, yeah. right, Astro? Like it that. was like an Astro van. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a square-looking van. I don't know. I can picture right now. We had one growing up, yeah. What color was it? <laughs> Ours was um, blue and gray. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the thing that stands out was like this empty, faceless driver that was clearly there and part of it, but we had no, there was nothing, to, there was no picture yeah. of this thing. Did, uh, did grandma drive much? Because maybe that wasn't required to have that dream. Um, she, she, she drove until, right. well into her 80s. She was pretty oh. active, but uh, <laughs> she drove like 10 miles an hour on the road. She was one of those. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny and so when yeah. you woke up how did you see that dream like how did that how was that how did you incorporate that into your life i felt peaceful and i think we the dreams that that have no words that are just feelings of a presence and of an imprint and of a of a connection and a moment with that person. It felt like a gift because I thought that would be gone forever. And I had it one more time. It was really like the way she was in life. I was thinking about me. It felt like she had, she just wanted me to know and, and be with me that, that way one more time. I love that. I love how these dreams can do that. And that's what happened with my dad. I had this, this dream and it just changed how I incorporated grief into my life. So I'm glad you had such a positive dream. And so since you had so many other things, like the loss of a job and the divorce, I'm curious about if you had any other kind of dreams along the way that reflected that, either from your grandma trying to reassure you that you're going to be okay, or just like metaphors or symbols that you sort of took on what you're going through at those times. Yeah, definitely. And I would love to hear your both of your feedback on, you know, because I don't, they're just dreams to me, but, but you've had so many wonderful conversations with so many people and so much study in this. But I dreamt in the middle of this whole midlife meltdown, funky junk, I had this dream that I was laying flat on a railroad track beneath a train. And all of a sudden, I heard the wheels starting to slowly creak and squeak. And I could see the rusted wheels starting to move forward. And I knew that the train was going to go over me and I was going to die. Like it was really clear that that was it for me. I couldn't move quick enough to get it to, you know, to save myself. And it was just that, that uh, split second moment of knowing. And I it was looking up at this big train above me that was starting to move. And just the feeling of not being able to breathe. 
Yeah, you can definitely. So how did you take that, actually, when you woke up? Did you ever <laughs> think about it? Uh, yeah, I still think about it now. Like when I talk to you about it, I can, I can remember like it was just happened last night. Um, I, the panic and the feeling of helplessness and overwhelming how small I felt and how big the world and, and all the fear and all the lack of, I don't like the word control because it's cliche, but just that lack of being able to do anything different and everything was going to happen around me and I had no part in making a difference in an outcome. Mm. I like it. I think it's great. And I think it, it really, really reflects what you're going through at that time and sense of the helplessness and the, the emotions. Did you ever think about why it wasn't a car and why it was a, a train? No, but I, I, that's a great <laughs> question. I mean, a train is so huge and massive and, I don't know. There's something about the sound of the squeaking wheels on the tracks. It's such a distinct sound. It's not like I grew up around trains or even been around trains very much, but mm. there's something really concrete and tangible about that squeaking metal on metal sound. Mm. Yeah. And also like you, if this dream was supposed to happen, that's a definite way to die. Like a car, you could still kind of live possibly. Mm. It was coming at you slowly. I mean, a lot of people have lived after being run over by cars. But a train, especially moving at that speed slow enough for you to process what's going on. Did you have time to think about, okay, I'm going to die and think about, I guess, my family or whatever you hold dearest? And No, whatever. I just knew I just knew I was going to, that was my end. Mm. Yeah, the way I sort of look at the train is a train has many compartments. So it's usually not like a car is very just like one compartment, basically. But with a train, there's so many different ones that go. Oh, that's why it takes like nine hours for it to cross the uh, the bridge or whatever. Um, <laughs> so it's carrying so much. And as you said, like you're dealing with so much. So it wasn't just like the death of your grandmother, because that could just be a car, right? It could be her running you over. It would be like a symbolic sort of thing. But you had so much that was forcing you to change and and it was killing you in the sense of the aspect of your identity so you never died right like you're still here talking to us but a part of you did die and that's what the challenge was you know like for you is to rebuild who you are through these difficult situations and i think it's just i think it's great to talk about these dreams because some people when they have them they just don't understand or don't process them there's a lot of information that they can sort of take from that to really understand how they are in waking life and how difficult or the feelings are feeling in waking life that they're maybe sometimes not processing or consciously talking about. So I think it's great that you had that dream and it's great that you're sharing it. And I think, you know, like for it to stay with you all this time, it had a deeper meaning than I think you fully understand to this date. Well, it seems like that much of what's out there, the psychological evaluation of Google things it's always the same three sentences i mean aside from like what you're doing in the community that you're in that really does a deeper meaningful look and conversation about these things it, it i wanted to know and i wanted to understand because it was so profound and um i probably could have had 
the conversation about it, but maybe it wouldn't have meant the same to me at that time. And I didn't really find meaningful resources because I hadn't really researched and been in that realm. I haven't really hadn't really started diving into the conversation of death and grief and afterlife and some of those things. That that, that started me on that path, and I'm, I'm still engaging with it now, but. I, I I love the idea of the multiple departments and just the weight of everything. Like I heard you talking just now, I imagine the weight of a train is so much heavier than a car, and just yeah, and you're under to it. Stop the weight of it, right? Yeah, you're under it. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's true. She wasn't standing up. Yeah, and it hit her. It like, yeah that's cool. And like you said, I like your idea, but all the compartments, you know, all that's there, overwhelming and, and over top of you. But yeah, I think asking the question of, of, yeah, a lot of people stop at, oh, that was a fearful dream. And it's like, okay, why was it fearful? How was it fearful for you? I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of these things, you know, especially those type of dreams, sometimes, you know, it's, 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 there's a lot of learning and understanding and it's okay. You don't have to, you don't need to beat yourself up about it that, oh, I didn't think about it enough then. Cause you still have it. You have it. It's here. You remember a lot about it, you know? That's it's that's great. So I'm curious now. So do you have more since you've been through that? Have you noticed a change in your dreams? Is it a little bit more positive since you've? I think you have a very positive outlook on life, and you're doing something that has I feel has deeper meaning than any any time um, before. So ha- has your dreams changed in like a positive way? They're all so strange and weird. <laughs> I feel like it's Alice in Wonderland when I close my eyes. I just never know what rabbit hole it's going to go in. And it's not like I have those dreams every night, but when I have them, they're really bizarre. And they run the range from places or people or abstractions. or And if I were going to do anything let's just say wave the magic wand and I was going to start over at any point in time and go into something. I would love to go into dream psychology because there is so much there that we just don't know and don't understand. It's like patrolling the bottom of the ocean. You just can never get that deep. You know, it takes so long to get that deep, but I am fascinated by why we dream what we dream or what they mean or how they come about and, interpretation and the psychology and the subconscious and all of that are they're just all multiple gateways into understanding and that that feels like a very abstract to me uh sense of myself but it but it is one that endlessly fascinates me and i i see the range of them from time to time um you know, if I if I dreamt that Brad Pitt wanted to pick me up in a in a Corvair, I mean, I, that was one I had. So who knows? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just so random. There's like, a you okay. know, and yeah, there's there's a lot of emotions, a lot of beauty in dreams, a lot of whimsy. I like the Alice in Wonderland analogy because, like, you know, it's a what would Alice be without going into that? You know, she didn't, she was courageous enough to go down the rabbit hole to experience this new, exciting, amazing world that, um, you know, I don't remember the movie too much, but taught her a lot of things about herself and um, gave her something that she was missing. And uh, I think that's what dreams are, is is essentially that. 
Were there can. characters? I would love to go back and now read the book or watch the movie mm-hmm. or whatever. But didn't those characters represent aspects of herself? I yes, don't really yeah, remember. I think so. Yeah, the Mad Hatter was like someone in her waking life, and this person, uh, you know, the Walrus was someone else. Yeah, the the Rabbit. Yeah, there was weird, twisted elements of the, of those people and characteristics and personalities. Also, the Wizard of Oz was all based on a dream too, and though so each one of those yeah. people were a part of her life. Yeah, that's another yeah. good one. Yeah. Yeah, dreams are fascinating. That's why I love I love dreams and it has been such an influential part of my life. Really r- around the age 20 I started valuing them. But yeah, the grief dream stuff, I think this is this is I think an opening to people valuing dreams in general more. And that's why I I hope that as we continue to talk about this topic, more people will then think to themselves, I wonder about my other dreams if they're meaningful what they represent in my life because i think that's the 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 doorway in just because in our society we don't really have a lot of true teachings on dreams a lot of stuff when you go online or you go to like chapters you have these dream dictionary books that are pretty bad and they don't give you the tools you actually do need to look at your own um, symbols and how they Mm -hmm. intertwine and how they reflect in your life so yeah, we're just a little behind, I think, when it comes to paying attention and valuing our dreams. I think other cultures, even before, you know, um, all this, you see a lot in different religions, how they value dreams and had interpreters. We don't really have that here. And so it's just getting That's back true. to some of the basics. Yeah. So I'm curious if you could have one dream tonight of your someone who's died. It could be your grandmother or it could be, you know, someone else, a celebrity. Uh, who would you want to dream of? And what would that look like? Well, I probably want to dream. Uh, I mean, I had two answers like right away because I'm just like celebrity. And I, I mean, at first I thought about my dad, but then I thought about John Lennon. Mm. <laughs> so, um, I think because John Lennon was such an expressive artist and uh, had so much wisdom in such a small space of words and images that. To me, that's like the quintessential form. When there's a lyric that says so much behind it without having to say more than what it is, I love that aspect of like expressing, whether it's through writing or photography, that there's one thing that can mean so much. And I think Lennon is, is that guy. That's pretty cool. And so how would you... How would you want it to all like play out would you want him to sing or oh that would be awesome okay. but i think serenade you be... <laughs> it's just serenade you <laughs> it would be nice to sit next to him at the piano and just not have to say anything and just have him be who he is and do what he does like with his magical knowing and his magical expression and his magical way to connect at such a deep level that's cool i like that and music touches us in in different ways and so to be able to just embrace that that'd be a really cool dream i really hope you have that and i want to sort of i want to say too you're not the only one who's had or well um paul mccartney actually had a dream of john lennon and it's actually i posted it on the grief dreams website under dreams and pop culture he went on the late show and talked about these dreams he has of him so yeah if you're into john lennon you probably like to hear those dreams that paul mccartney had. i will go him. look at that yes no yeah that that's that's a beautiful dream i i like it a lot and 
I like what you said about music and you're absolutely right. There's sometimes a, a chorus or a line that just touches you and hits you and you could be driving or doing something and you'll stop and it'll take you back uh, to a place or an emotion. And uh, that, that's the that's the beauty of music. It is a soundtrack to our lives. Um, so yeah, I, I want to, uh, we're definitely going to wrap up with that. Uh, Jenna, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing about yourself and about your life and uh, the book that you've written and what's going on. Could you um, share your handles and where people can find the book? Sure. So the book is called Me, My Selfie, and I, E-Y-E, A Midlife Conversation About Lost Identity, Grief, and Seeing Who You Are. It's available at all of the major online retailers as well as Book Baby. My website is janalopez.com. That's J-A-N-N-A-L-O-P-E-Z.com. And it has information for how to get a hold of me. And I would encourage anybody who wants to talk about this aspect of grief as it relates to midlife. I am happy to always respond or listen or offer input. And I would be happy to come and share at any conferences or workshops that, that made sense. So this has been really interesting. You guys ask amazing questions and good for you for, for having them and for providing this for so many people. Oh, thank you so much. We appreciate it. And also you as well. You did a phenomenal job uh, on this podcast and uh, it was, it was just a great conversation and time really flew by. Yes. <laughs> It's good. I'd like to mention one thing. I think like the, for me talking to you, one of the takeaways I got was that a lot of times in life, we search for a best friend. And I think through all this, what, what I get from all this is becoming your best friend. And I think that's really what it's all about is valuing yourself. And so when these crises do happen, because they will, you're your best friend. So you're not criticizing yourself as you would if you weren't. And so I'm so happy that you brought that to light and you're able to learn that in this lifetime to be able to then help others be a little bit more proactive in dealing with the stresses that come about. Because as much as you're talking about midlife, you're really just talking about life in general. Right. Just kindness, general kindness. Yeah. I, I'm it's maybe being a better friend. I'm, I'm working on the best part. So definitely <laughs> yeah. Better. yeah. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so we all are. Yes. Um, excellent. Uh, thank you so much again. And uh, people, you can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. We added a donation donation button and there are perks to those who donate. And thank you so much to everybody who has donated to Patreon. Uh, again, um, thank you for helping to support us. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we like to end the podcast. Oh, actually, before I forget, uh, we do have another podcast, which we like to promote, and it's called the Grief Cafe Podcast. So check that out on iTunes um, and hope you enjoy that. And as always, we like to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you.
I have introduced myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.